Hey, everybody, this is Ben Bowman and Alex Titus. Welcome to another episode of The Oregon Bridge. I think that everybody at this point just thinks what's going on downtown is wrong. And that until we can finally get the situation under control, like stuff like this is going to keep happening. It's going to keep getting more violent. We talk a lot, especially on this show, about the urban-rural divide. Our outcomes are tied together in this state. Our hospital system is tied together. Our public health is tied together. Our investment of resources is tied together. And I think the instincts that some people have on the left and on the right to just cut off the relationship and separate is just not realistic. All right, thanks everybody for listening. Uh, Titus, we have a different kind of episode today. Uh, We're gonna give folks a sample of what's to come and uh, review some of the top news stories over the last week. Obviously, if you've been listening to the podcast or if you read The Oregon Way or The Liftoff on the Substack, you can tell that we've got a few different things going out in the world. And so I think we wanted to talk about that a little bit, Titus, right? And you were going to start with some questions. Yeah. So Ben, we've talked a little bit about Liftoff, what The Oregon Way is before, but very shortly. There's been really little exponent. I don't even know if we've told people the domain of where they can go and find where the Oregon way and where the liftoff is. So one, where can I go and find that in an easy manner? And then two, what is the Oregon way and what is the liftoff? Fair. So easy starting point is the URL for both of these products is the Oregon way, one word, dot substack.com. The Oregon way dot substack.com. Both the liftoff, which is basically a news aggregation newsletter, and the Oregon Way, which is basically an op-ed page for the most interesting and important topics about Oregon's future. They're both through the same substack. So basically, once you subscribe to that substack, you will receive all of the emails that go out. And we're working on making it customizable. So basically, you get to choose which particular things you want to receive. But right now, it's all in the same place. So if you just go there and subscribe, you'll get it. In terms of what the Oregon Way is, this is what was started by Kevin Frazier. We interviewed him in one of our first episodes, if you want to learn more about this. But essentially, it's like an op-ed page for anyone, whether it be an elected official or a lobbyist or just a citizen, to give their perspective on an important public policy issue or political issue that impacts Oregon's future and put it out into a community of civic-minded Oregonians. And then the liftoff is basically... Think of it as like Axios or Politico playbook, basically focused exclusively on Oregon issues. So Alex, myself, and Kevin, as well as several interns and other supporters are reading all the statewide and local news in Oregon, a bunch of different national sources. And we're trying to aggregate what we think the most important stories are on politics, government, campaigns, and elections that people need to know in order to operate in this space and understand what's going on. So not only are we compiling the top like five to 10 stories each week, we try to provide just a little bit of analysis about why it matters and why they need to, people need to understand the trends that are driving these new stories. So that's a bit of a summary about what the products look like. Yeah. And I think that the most interesting thing, at least for, for us when it comes to liftoff, is it's supposed to be short and it's supposed to be insightful. So the idea is that you can figure out what the heck is going on in Oregon politics and things that are relating to Oregon nationally by spending five minutes once a week reading it. Because there's so many newsletters going out. There's so much content being created. that, And I mean, this, this is me personally, right? Like I actually like my news formatted this way always. Maybe that's because I'm a millennial. 
uh, but we could have a further discussion about that. But it basically is just going to take the most important things that you need to know and easily summarize them together. Plus give some of the different analysis and analytical takes, both from the conservative perspective from me, and then also from the progressive perspective from Ben too. But we try to make it fairly nonpartisan, but I mean, of course, also like it's, and as you've learned throughout this podcast, our bias is inherent in everything, but we think that that causes for a more honest conversation than for Ben to pretend like he's, you know, completely unbiased with anything and like has no political views and the same with me because we're people and that's just who we are. We think that's also what kind of makes this product unique. Totally. Yeah. And I think like, it, it's interesting, the, the newsletters that seem to have the most traction at the national level, or at least the ones that I like to read, they have an editorial voice to them, right? Like, so Mike Allen yeah. from Axios has a point of view, and he will occasionally insert it. Politico Playbook got in a lot of trouble because they sort of editorialized against the strategic plan that the Biden administration was using. And people were like, oh, you're biased. And the point is, their argument is that the reason why you're subscribing to this is because we are professionals in this space who are paid to understand these trends and predict the fallout of what's going to happen or something along those lines. And so the idea here is like, nobody's surprised that I'm a liberal, you know, I've run for office as a liberal Titus, you've, you've written, you know, dozens of op-eds that have been in conservative publications. Like our biases, our inherent biases are known. So folks can do with that what they will. But the idea is we do have some level of analysis about what's going on and why it's going on. And we also try to supplement the newsletter. Like we're going to have an exclusive interview um, just a really short four or five question interview with elected officials. We're going to have guests who write a couple of bullet points about what they think folks need to know for the week to try to make it a more fun and interesting and engaging type of newsletter. Yeah. So you guys should definitely go check it out. If you also just Google the Oregon way, uh, it should pop up near the top. So it shouldn't be any troubles finding it. So definitely go and go and check it out. And what I will say, because I know folks don't always, some folks listen to the podcast days or weeks after they're released. We do have an official name of the, the three organization or the three products, which are the Liftoff newsletter, the Oregon Bridge podcast, and the Oregon Way op-ed page. Collectively, we are calling our entity Oregon 360. So we will be rebranding with a logo and you know more unified branding um, moving forward. But as we like to remind folks, we are all volunteers. None of us get paid anything for this. Um, at least not yet. Um, and so Ben's literally making millions of dollars. <laughs> so it does take us some time. We all have day jobs that keep us very busy as well as some other volunteer things that we do, but we think this is important and we think it's a worthwhile thing to spend our free time on. So look forward for more information on Oregon 360 in the coming weeks. But with that, I think we wanted to give people just a run through of here, what we decided are the top stories for the week that were included on the liftoff that came out on Monday, the 30th of August. So the first story was essentially updates on the governor's race. So we, of course, plugged our podcast episode with Dr. Bud Pierce. My dad says that this is our best episode, Titus. So good work. And I think- Thank you. Thank you. And I think what was uh, what people liked about it was like, again, Bud Pierce, medical doctor, interestingly, basically said, like, I would choose vaccines over masks. And I think by enforcing a mask mandate, we're losing trust in the institutions that are telling people they should be vaccinated. And so I wouldn't make that trade off. Very controversial position, one that I don't agree with, but honestly, frankly, a, a better rationale than what I hear, frankly, from most on the right, which is, you know, 
arguments about, you know, personal freedom, et cetera, without recognizing that people's individual choices are impacting the community. So interesting episode from Bud Pierce. And then a rumor, there's a rumor. And by the time you listen to this, this might already be old news. In fact, it probably will be, but we hear that uh, speaker Tina Kotek, who I believe will be top tier, if not the leading candidate in the Democratic primary for governor is expected to announce sometime this week, um, the week of 830. So we, we talk a little bit about that as well as- Yeah, and, and, and so Ben, just to talk about that a little bit, why is Speaker Kotek, in your opinion, considered the top tier candidate compared to someone like Treasurer Reed, who's also been on this podcast, definitely an episode that everyone should check out, or someone like Nick Kristoff? I mean, because I, I mean, from the, the source that you and I had spoken to, it, it seems pretty clear that she is going to announce maybe even the very day that this podcast is, is being released. So what, from your perspective, makes her the top tier candidate? Great question. And I'll preface by saying it is totally not inconceivable that Tobias Reed would win the primary or that Nick Kristoff would win the primary, in my opinion. There's people who disagree and think that they are less likely. I'm not one of those people. But the reason why I think... Speaker Kotek starts in first place is think about what matters in a primary election. One, you need a lot of money so you can communicate out to voters your name, what you stand for, and why they should vote for you. All of these candidates, including Nick Kristoff, have to have a name recognition less than maybe 20 or 30%. Like nobody is coming in. Like, Do you really think that Nick Kristoff's name record is that low? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Um, I think, I think. I think maybe, folk- maybe, maybe I give the New York Times too much credit into sort of the white liberal audience. I would feel like most of Portland, at least the folks who are voting, would who, who I think are the most important, like would know who he is. But it's probably interesting. It's, it's, it's definitely higher with because the- that was one advantage with Trump, right? Was like when it came to Nevada, most people had no idea what his positions were, but he had like 99% name recognition. Yeah. I don't think Kristoff has anywhere near that high, but I would think. His would be, pr- I mean, I could be wrong. I'd actually be curious to see some polling. I guess our good friends at the Oregon Values and Belief Center are nonpartisan and not non-political. So unfortunately they can't do that. But uh, interesting poll if someone is throwing, uh, conducting any of those. Well, and the thing is, we know that candidates for governor are definitely conducting these polls. So they they have this information. We're just guessing. I do think you're right that it's it's high. It's certainly higher for Democratic primary voters than it is for the broader electorate. But it's definitely not like Trump or John Kitzhaber in the 2010 primary, where he was as a former governor coming in with you know sky high name recognition. So a to increase name recognition, you need money um, or you need earned media. So the reason why Kotech has an advantage there is basically think of a case study being then state senator Shamia Fagan's race for secretary of state. She's running against Senator Mark Hass, who had far more experience. A lot of legislative accomplishments had been around for a long time. And Jamie McLeod Skinner, who ran like a very inspiring primary challenge of Greg Walden, came closer than any Democrat ever to winning in Oregon's most rural and conservative district um, and had this sort of grassroots base. Shamia Fagan entered the race super late, but received hundreds of thousands of dollars from progressive groups, labor unions, pro-choice groups, environmental groups, et cetera. Speaker Kotek at least is perceived to have an advantage with all of those same groups. So that's that, the- and that was one thing I know you had a actually a lift off before with the campaign analysis breakdown. I know that Kotek did not have that much money, but of course, when your friends have a lot of money, uh, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars, that accounts for a lot too. So yeah, for sure. And I and I think like the other thing not to forget is what will be interesting is 
Will Speaker Kotek, she's been speaker for 10 years, the longest speaker in Oregon history. And also many would many reporters uh, will refer to her like in the Willamette Week, they refer to her as the most powerful politician in Oregon, like more powerful than the governor even, which is sort of shocking. Mm-hmm. But that kind of power has, there's two things that go along with it. One is she certainly has a network of legislators across the state who are loyal to her and who believe in her and who will probably want to see her promoted to governor. But she's also had to make very challenging decisions, particularly for a Democrat, including things like cutting PERS that have been super controversial and have earned some enemies. So the question is like, how does that shake out? Shamia Fagan, for example, she never had to take a vote against PERS. She avoided some of the controversy that you can't avoid when you're the, you know, the head of the Oregon House. So a lot of factors at play there, but I think A, she'll be a very strong fundraiser and B, like when people open up a voters pamphlet and they see an endorsement from, you know, a labor union or Planned Parenthood or environmental, uh, Oregon League of Conservation Voters or another environmental group, assuming she is able to maintain the sort of Shamia Fagan level of support, I think that makes her a really strong candidate and hard to beat. That being said, Tobias Reed, excellent fundraiser. Nick Kristoff, potential to be an excellent fundraiser. And they're going to have other advantages and perhaps less baggage in terms of votes than the speaker. So anyone's ballgame. But I think people who look at like initial polling and say, oh, you know, Tina Kotex at less than 10% or she doesn't have that much money. That's a bad reading of the state of affairs. So the, the next major article we spoke just spoke about Nick Kristoff. He released a 15-page memo outlining his residency chops, basically why he thinks he meets the legal legal status of Oregon resident. You have to basically have to live in Oregon. He, 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 he's 100% going to run. <laughs> yeah, like you probably don't have. No, no one pays a lawyer to put together <laughs> that, that BS memo to not run. That, that, his legal fees are probably expensive. <laughs> yes. Well, and, and the lawyer who wrote it was the former was former um, counsel to Governor Kate Brown. So this is a really high powered attorney. And I think the other the context people should remember about this is there regularly or at least semi regularly been challenges to people's residency eligibility. And almost across the board, those challenges are swept aside. Um, Oregon has historically been pretty lax in terms of whether or not someone qualifies as a resident. So I would be surprised if they prevented someone like Nick Kristoff from running simply because he voted in the, the argument is basically he voted in New York in 2020. So how could you have lived in Oregon for three years by 2022? And the memo outlined several different things, one of which that I thought was interesting was New York doesn't require your primary resident residency residence to be mm. New York in order to vote in New York elections. So his argument was my primary residence was always Oregon. I didn't have to choose New York to vote in New York. I just chose to vote in New York. So definitely not great for Nick, but it's definitely not going to prevent him from running, in my opinion, or I don't think like most voters are going to make their choice based on this. Yeah, I don't think anybody's going to care. The thing, and actually, I think nationally, this is so key. And frankly, was, and again, I, I always think it's funny because I feel like on this podcast, we only compare Democrats to Donald Trump. <laughs> and they probably want to kill me when I say that. But the amount of media attention that Nick Kristoff will get when he runs is going to be astronomical, uh, at least in my opinion, because journalists love to cover things that other journalists are doing. 
And Ben, you have a little bit of experience this now because you're an editor and, and our primary writer of the liftoff. But <laughs> I think that the media attention, there's going to be so many think pieces. He's going to do so many TV interviews. He's going to do podcasts. He's going to do radio. It's going to be astronomical because journalists are going to be, I mean, there already has been some pieces about this, right? Like he made quite a stir when he said that he was going to explore a run. Uh, I think that will, I mean, money matters a lot, but, you know, free publicity and media do, of course, too, which is free money, basically. Yes, so, exactly. Uh, was, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty bold on Christoph if he does decide to run. If I was him, I would absolutely run because, again, I think he's going to raise a bunch of money. I think there's going to be a lot of media attention. Yeah, I think you're, I think you're probably right about that. And the other advantage that I think he has is, like, so people should follow him on Twitter. And then follow any other Oregon politician on Twitter. He's a he. He comes across like I wrote in the liftoff. He has one of the most interesting Twitter feeds. Like he's tweeting about interesting things and providing semi-controversial, not controversial, but like interesting opinions. And in other words, like he's not always on his talking points. Which I think if you look at Twitter feeds for a lot of politicians, it oftentimes comes across as like a carefully scripted one sentence thing. It's horrible. Yeah, it's not fun. <laughs> um, so to the extent that that is true of who Nick is in interviews and um, with voters, like I think that's helpful. Um, I think scripted scripted politicians was like very much a 1990s, you know, early 2000s um, thing that is not, I think politicians who aren't scripted, including people like Donald Trump and Joe Biden come across better with voters. So we'll see how that turns out. Last thing on this uh, before we transition to the next topic is Labor Commissioner Val Hoyle, who has said in the past that she's not running for governor, but who many, myself included, have thought potentially could enter the race later, has reiterated to a local Eugene source, KLCC, that she's not running for governor. I mean, this is on the heels of a thorough investigation released by the Department of Justice conducted by a private investigator that basically says she and the Bureau of Labor and Industries did not do anything wrong. They were accused of wrongdoing, racism, poor practices by a couple of disgruntled former employees who are still suing the agency. But like the Oregonian wrote about this and basically every single claim was debunked or dismissed by this private investigator. And in some cases, the claims were like flipped on their head where you actually feel more sympathetic for the agency or for the you know other people involved. So very great news day for, for Val. There's still obviously the lawsuits that will be litigated, but she, uh, she has said she's not running for governor, at least not right now. Yeah, that was, that was a coup for Commissioner Hoyle. That could have been, if that would have been a disaster, I think, especially with some of those allegations, like she would have put, I don't think she would have been done in the sense that she would have had to resign, uh, maybe if they were really bad. But I mean, that could have been quite a death knell to any campaign for, for governor, which of course she said that she is not running. She's running for reelection. So probably governor at a future point. <laughs> yes. Yes. So yeah, that, that was like our roundup of stories in uh, the governor's race. Again, this week, a lot of people are suggesting uh, Kotech and potentially several others will be jumping in either this week or this month. So it's going to heat up really, really fast. People are going to raise a lot of money really fast and it's going to get very interesting. The next main story is about redistricting. So another rumor that we've heard, unsubstantiated, but it does seem like it's the case. At least one map, potentially a Democrat and Republican map, potentially a Senate map and a House map. We're not exactly sure what it's going to look like, but the redistricting committees are going to release at least one map, we think, this week about what the legislative and or congressional districts 
will look like under their first proposal to receive public feedback. There, to say there's a lot riding on these maps is an understatement. Like people are trying to decide where to move because of these maps. People are deciding whether or not they're going to mm -hmm. retire because of these maps. People are trying to figure out whether Republicans have a chance to pick up a congressional seat or potentially even, you know, regain some traction in the state legislature. So there's a ton writing on these maps. And there's a lot of context that we could talk about, about, you know, Speaker Kotek's deal to give Republicans an even number of seats in the House and, you know, how the congressional map goes to the courts versus the if there's no agreement in the legislature versus the legislative maps going to the Secretary of State's office, who's a progressive Democrat. There's so many layers here. But the main point is, this is the month of redistricting, like this whole month, a lot of political oxygen is going to be sucked up by people reading maps, providing input to maps, trying to lobby members to change the maps, um, et cetera, et cetera. So expect a lot on that front. Good news for Democrats, good news for congressional incumbents in Oregon. Axios came out with, they had done some reporting that uncovered there's 15 districts that the National Republican Congressional Committee, which is the basically the campaign arm of congressional Republicans, they've targeted 15 districts, and none of them are Oregon districts. So that's great news for Kurt Schrader, for Peter DeFazio, the two congressmen who are in the most competitive seats in Oregon. And back yeah, and maybe maybe to throw some cold water on that, I was in D.C. last week doing a bunch of meetings with folks, and uh, I think that there is actually quite a lot of interest from different conservative groups, different PACs and things like that for what's going on in Oregon, uh, especially as it relates to Scarlatos and then potentially Lori as well. But yeah, I mean, who's going to know until we actually see what the maps look like, right? Because it could be, as you said, 5-1, it could be 3-3. Three, three. No one even knows who's going to be running against two at this point. So yeah, I think that they're just going to basically have to wait until that process plays out before there's actually any concrete interest in either of their candidacies. Yeah, no, I agree. I don't, I don't necessarily think people should read into this too much other than the fact that like every congressional seat in the country is getting redrawn. So if you're one of these 15 districts who got targeted, that's a pretty strong indication that there's going to be financial resources dedicated to defeating you. And so far, there hasn't been as concrete of evidence for the two Oregon districts. Um, okay, so the last thing on this is uh, a milestone for the Oregon House, 33 of 60 members are women in the Oregon House of Representatives. That's the high watermark ever in terms of gender equity in the state house. And interestingly, the, the, what got us to 33 was the addition of two Republican women. And the Republican caucus, of course, is less, has fewer women than the Democratic caucus, but it is trending towards gender equity. So the third story is about the Newburgh School Board. This is a story that has been in national news outlets. And like, if you just Google Newburgh School Board right now, it is in all the Oregon press. Everyone is talking about it. It's very popular on Twitter. Essentially, the board has directed their superintendent to like look into or start removing Black Lives Matter symbols and flags and the pride flag, which you can imagine <laughs> how uh, controversial this is. What broke news this week was they, the Newberg, a reporter for the Newberg Graphic, a guy named Ryan Clark, broke this story. The board essentially broke public meeting law, which says if you're going to make a decision as a public body, you have to provide adequate notice to the public that you're going to deliberate and decide on these issues. Without alerting the public that they were going to be making this decision, the board decided that they were going to hire outside counsel. So they were warned in the meeting, hey, you shouldn't do this. You're going to be breaking public meeting law. And then they did it anyway, 
And then it turns out the people, the person that they hired or the firm that they hired is run by a guy, a guy named Tyler Smith, who uh, is a past vice chairman of the Oregon Republican Party. So used to be school boards were considered like very nonpartisan um, and very much, you know, insulated from political movements. The Newberg story is very strong evidence that those days are either behind us or trending in that direction. Um, it's become a very political, very polarized topic. People are talking about recall elections. Outside groups are coming in. The congresswoman for the district has condemned this. The ACLU says that they're going to sue them if they don't change it. You know, the speaker and the House Majority Leader have condemned this. The teachers union is upset. The city council voted against it or voted to condemn it. And most interesting for our national listeners is Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was actually in Oregon in the district. And she met with some advocates who are urging her to basically speak out against this or condemn it. She has not yet. And, as, and as Ben a, Ben blew it by not inviting her on the podcast. <laughs> we, uh, yes, maybe in a future future uh, Oregon Bridge episode, we'll have AOC. But uh, for now, for now, we're not. So the next story, and I want to get your thoughts on this. So Proud Boys versus Antifa. There was honestly, in my opinion, a very embarrassing and um, shameful event on a week ago last Sunday or basically like Proud Boys had this rally and like Antifa showed up and they started like shooting paintball at each other and throwing tear gas and like people they knocked over I think the Proud Boys knocked over a van and Antifa attacked these journalists and this was all happening right in or next to Park Rose High School which is a part of Portland that often feels neglected and forgotten about Meanwhile, I think this eventually escalated into like gunshots being fired in downtown Portland, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah. it was honestly just like an awful thing to watch unfold on Twitter. And the, the strange, it seemed strange to me was after it happened, you know, going into this, the police had basically said, we're not going to be standing in between these two groups and, you know, preventing this from happen happening. And then after it happened, the mayor, the OPB headline is Portland mayor claims victory as Park Rose residents feel real from unchecked political violence. So the mayor basically he said, heck of a headline. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it, it's just, it was wild. Like, I, I, it's hard to imagine that this would be the strategy moving forward for the police or for the city that like we're just going to be hands off when these sort of things happen. But Titus, what do you, what do you make of it? What do you make of like, a, the fact that the Antifa Proud Boys brawls continue and B, about like how the city has responded. Yeah, and I've actually written about this before. I mean, this was probably like a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, but there's been videos downtown of, and this was kind of before the Proud Boys were even a thing of like random members of Antifa protesting in the street and them just openly attacking cars. And there's members of the police force sitting by, I mean, you can see in the video, their police cars and they're just, at, they're just doing nothing. It seems like maybe I'm crazy here. I don't know. It seems crazy that the people are allowed to brawl in the streets and that the police won't basically shut this down and do nothing. Clearly there's tons of laws that are being violated when any of this sort of thing happens. And I mean, I mean, and again, I mean, you focused on here too, that like, there was a couple of, uh, I don't know if they're think pieces, if you'd want to call it that, but like Matt Tibby, for example, who used to work for Rolling Stone and has a pretty popular uh, substack now. He wrote a piece about this, actually, because the journalist was attacked. 
during this whole, I don't even know if you'd want to call it a skirmish or call it role-playing or whatever it is, but yeah, I mean, it's frankly just out of control. And again, this is something that you mentioned on a previous liftoff, but Republicans are just going to hit this point over and over and over and over and over again. Whether you're Bud Pierce or you're Mayor Stan Pulliam, or I'm sure I know we're having Bridget Barton on the show here at some point too, and like they are just going to hammer on the Portland issue because I think the people have basically just had enough. And by that, I mean, I think that everybody at this point just thinks what's going on downtown is wrong. And that until we can finally get the situation under control, like stuff like this is going to keep happening. It's going to keep getting more violent. Uh, And I mean, why would you want to live downtown when things like this are happening on your block or like have kids in an area like this? I mean, it's just, it should just be unacceptable, but yeah, I mean, you know, until something changes, you can really just keep expecting to see news stories like this on a weekly or biweekly basis. I, I did want to read a short excerpt from retired Oregonian columnist Steve Dean, who still occasionally writes um, pieces for the Oregonian, who took a, uh, his ba- he was basically defending the police, which was interesting. And this is a part of what his argument is. This much seems clear. And he's the context of this is he's talking about you know, progressive demands of defunding the police or using less con- uh, confrontational tactics like tear gas. This much seems clear. The cops weren't being asked to run, as they say, toward the fire. They are being castigated because they no longer they are no longer inclined to serve, protect, or position themselves between right-wing loudmouths and the left-wing demonstrators who insist all cops are bastards. Portland police are done. Uh, he says, done with that, talking about, he draws a comparison to Afghanistan. He says, they've concluded their riot gear is energizing the combatants, not enforcing the police. So I think what what he does that's really important is he reminds us of the political context this is in. Like this is after, you know, calls for defunding the police, an actual reduction in the police budget by the city of Portland. One of the teams that was, I forget the name of it, but one of the teams that was supposed to respond to incidents like this, all the police officers resigned from that appointment. They stayed. Yeah. The rapid response team or some specific title for it, but yeah, you're right. They were basically like, we're not, we're not doing this. Um, His argument is they've been told they can't use tear gas and these other things. And they should be able to, to, this is Steve Dean's argument. They should be able to, in order to control the crowd. So um, there's it, I think the mistake that people make, and this would be one of my critiques of um, Dr. Pierce in our last episode is this is clearly not an easy problem to fix. This is clearly not like, well, if we just had leadership and someone who could get everyone around the table, it's like, no, there's, there's very, there's interests that are clashing that are not aligned. And, um, you know, like we, we were just talking about before we started recording the, in, the situation in Scapoose, which is a very small community, but you essentially have uh, the police union rebelling against the police chief and rebelling against the city manager um, which is the equivalent of the mayor in Scapoose in terms of oversight of the police. And they're like that type of thing could very easily happen in Portland if if tensions continue to be inflamed, if you know certain privileges or rights are taken away from police officers, et cetera. Like it's not hard to imagine this actually getting worse before it gets better. So I think it's for yeah. sure. You're, you're well, right. I actually did this in Atlanta a little. Or I, for, I forgot when this specific instance was, but it was like a bunch of police officers just called in sick and just didn't show up. And there was like very few force units to actually respond to crime for more than 24 hours, uh, well, so this, which is scary when things like this are happening downtown. Like it's one thing. And I know Republicans are going to absolutely use this in the governor's election because people are very unhappy about it. But it is dishonest to act like 
you know, it's just these idiot Democrats. And if they just clean it up, like, this is hard. <laughs> this is going to be really hard to solve. And it's going to be really hard to solve in a way that actually protects all the different constituencies involved here, including the people who live in Park Rose, for example, who clearly were just collateral damage in what happened on, uh, on Sunday. So anyway, something we need to dive deeper into on this podcast moving forward, for sure. Um, and we've got some, some potential guests that I think we'll be able to speak to in an interesting way. Next item, some accountability reporting. We won't talk too much about this, but uh, the Oregonian released their database of city salaries. Um, and speaking of police officers, of the employees of the city of Portland making over 200,000, of which there are several, there's quite a few actually, almost all of them are either police officers or firefighters. And mo- many of those folks, all of those folks making over 200,000 make more money than the mayor, um, Ted Wheeler, who makes $143,655, which is more than the governor, secretary of state, attorney general, commissioner of labor and industries, uh, state treasurer, et cetera, et cetera. So that's interesting. And then um, Titus, had you ever heard of hydro hogs before? No, but I was, I was reading this over from earlier and I was like, this is so mean. <laughs> <laughs> it's mean, but it, it, it's, it's accountability reporting. They're basically what it is, is Willamette Week does public records requests of which households are using the most water from the two main water districts in Portland. And they just name names. They name like who specifically is, is using this water. And then they call them and get, like try to get their co- a comment from them, which leads to some very funny exchanges. And there's a couple of politicos on this list, including a state senator, um, a CEO of a major company, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So, so, so Ben, give me the background on Senator Kate Lieber, who I see is a Democrat from Beaverton. How is she using uh, more <laughs> water or almost as much water as the CEO of Columbia Sportswear, who I'm assuming has a massive house? Well, yeah. The thing you need to remember about state legislators is like the vast majority of them are not making their incomes or the the most of their incomes from their legislative pay. So Senator Kay Lieber was very successful in the private sector prior to running for office. And she's also married to a higher powered um, attorney as well, who's done very well. So, uh, so I think that's the backstory there, but yeah, a lot of water being, (laughs) being used by a small number of people. Uh, interesting for some folks. It was funny. Gosh, I, I, I would love a mortgage at that amount. That would be like a million dollar house. <laughs> it, was, it was funny to hear there's one, there's one guy who I can't even remember who it was, who's like number one on the list, like four years ago or three years ago, and was like number 10 this time. And so when they called him, he's like, Hey, at least I'm not number one. This is awesome. Which yeah, very, very uh, interesting read. So we're going to wrap it up. We got a couple more stories. This one, uh, we could talk about for a long time. It's about the economic forecast the, from the, the states, basically the state's economist, uh, as well as uh, what that means for the kicker. So our listeners probably know, but if you don't, the kicker is basically when Oregon collects more revenue than it budgeted, it would collect. It is constitutionally required to give that money back proportionally based on how much an individual paid in taxes to taxpayers. So because the kicker is kicking, there are some Oregon taxpayers who are going to get like $17,000 back. I think the average person is going to get somewhere around $450 back. The total amount is $1.9 billion with a B. And so what you essentially get is you get folks on the right, like Reagan Canope, who wrote about this on the Oregon way, who says the kicker is great. The money should be spent by taxpayers, not the government. And in fact, the, in fact, the, tick, the kicker 
limits government spending and government growth and forces the government to use better budgeting practices. That's on one hand. And on the other hand, you have like, we have $1.9 billion in surplus right now. We know during recessions, we're going to have to be cutting government services because we won't have enough money. Why on earth wouldn't we put this in a rainy day fund or allocate it to, you know, low income organizations who need it now, et cetera, et cetera. Titus, what I wanted to ask you about, and I actually am very serious about this. So Matt Iglesias, uh, who is a very well-known founder, co-founder of Vox, has like the most popular Substack, is making like hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars from his Substack. I think millions of dollars, yeah. Uh, which is wild. He s- somehow this showed up in his feed and he was basically saying, wouldn't he was asking John Horvick, Oregon's like top political pollster, wouldn't it be politically feasible to restart, restructure the kicker in a flatter way. And John said, well, usually when people are wanting to find out how it pulls, they want to figure out, you know, could we put this to a rainy day fund or could we give it to other government services? Mm -hmm. So Titus, what would you say as a, I'd say you're a pretty populist conservative. What would you say about reforming the kicker so that every Oregonian receives an equal amount from the kicker? So instead of really rich people getting a big check from the government, and poor people getting very little, we basically make it flat, like what Matt Iglesias is is suggesting, and everybody would get, I don't know what it would shake out to be, but let's say a thousand or $2,000. Do you think Mm -hmm. Republicans, do you think you could get GOP support for a proposal like that? So I I do think you could get GOP support for that proposal. And uh, let's take ourselves to, I don't know, a some random state in the country that has a very close, like actually the state of Virginia, for example, I think they have like plus one or two in both their state house and their state Senate. Right. So like you, you can't lose a lot of votes. It's very close Uh, in Oregon with the situation that we're in. I could never see a compromise like that happening just because if you're the Democrats and you want to have more money for a rainy day fund, why would you, it's a constitutional reform. They can't do Democrats can't do it alone. Oh, oh, constitu- oh, yes, yes, you're right. Constitutional reform. What exact percentage would they need that? I think, so we should know more about this, but basically there's two choices here. One is the legislature could refer it to the ballot. And I'm not sure if that would, re- I think that would require Republican votes. Maybe not. I don't know. Um, I'll try to Google it while we're talking here. But, um, or you could do a initiative and referendum process where you collect enough signatures to change the state's constitution. Yeah, I think I think it would be interesting. Uh, and even just just removing the semantics of how it would work. I feel like you could totally see some Republican from a rural district being like, going to a very progressive Democrat and saying something like, hey, you might want to give more of this money to, you know, African American communities, Hispanic communities, Asian communities, etc. I want to give more of this money to families that have been affected by the change in the economy, whether if it's timber, whether if it's, you know, fishing or agriculture, whatever. Uh, Let's come together and take some of Portland's pot of money and redistribute it amongst our own constituencies. I could totally see something like that happening. And honestly, if that was put on the ballot measure, I feel like that would be pretty popular as well. So uh, who knows if it would, if it can make it that far, I feel like, there's an argument from both kind of constituencies in each party that maybe even appreciate what the status quo is right now. But I mean, definitely an interesting thought exercise for sure. Yeah. I mean, the way I've been thinking about it is like, I think as a Democrat, I think it makes more sense from a governance perspective. Reagan would, of course, disagree with me on this, but I think it actually makes more sense to put it in a rainy day fund or put it someplace where when we need the money, we can access it rather than just like 
making our class sizes larger and firing teachers and et cetera, et cetera. So the, the problem here is you only get one bite at the apple probably. You're only gonna get to reform this once. So I also think that a bigger check to lower income people is way better than rich people getting a big check back from the government that they don't need. So if I couldn't get the rainy day proposal or if Democrats couldn't get the rainy day proposal, would they be willing to settle for a sort of compromise of that that probably like you said could pass because most voters most voters would get a, a raise an increase probably well, especially in in rural districts i imagine where the levels of income are substantially lower yes. so anyway that's another one we should we should have a some expert on the kicker come and tell us why our idea doesn't make any sense um <laughs> but uh the last major story for the week was um a really depressing headline from OPB. They, it was in their newsletter, not in the actual story, but the newsletter headline is Oregon no longer a pandemic success story. And I feel like that's how much of the state is feeling right now. Like in the first wave, the initial wave or waves, I should say, like Oregon actually was performing far better than the rest of the country. Um, the governor, the governor's actions in terms of um, mandates, public health responsibilities, requirements, et cetera, did mitigate the spread pretty effectively, or at least more effectively than most other states. And with the Delta variant, it's a totally different story. Southern Oregon in, in particular is an absolute disaster. Very high levels of hospitalization. People from Southern Oregon are literally being transported up to Salem and Portland to be hospitalized because there's no beds. Josephine County and Tillamook County have literally requested refrigeration trucks to store dead bodies because their funeral homes do not have the capacity to handle the deaths from the Delta variant. So um, I don't think there's any way to spin that other than incredibly depressing and tragic and awful. And I think just underlines what I continue to be frustrated by, which is this, an inability for us to agree that vaccines are a good idea or for, for everyone to agree. Like this is the way that I see it. Virtually every person in a position of power, including President Donald, former President Donald Trump, has been vaccinated. And as we've mentioned on this podcast, Democrats and progressive-minded people overwhelmingly vaccinated. But for some reason, whether it be the media, whether it be social media, whether it be signaling power from politicians, conservatives and rural folks are tending to be far less vaccinated and I think it's one of the most important and unsolved public pol immediate public policy problems in our country. And I don't know what to do about it. Titus, what do you think? What, what do you think could be done about it? I mean, to be fair, the thing I think also gets left out of this is like a lot of people of color are also not vaccinated, like from a pretty substantial high amount. I mean, that's been shown repeatedly too. I mean, I don't know about an organ necessarily because we don't really have a that high of a percentage of, for example, African-American community compared to somewhere like California. But I don't know. I, I do actually think Bud made a good point when it came with the mask thing is that, like, for example, I think it's ridiculous that I'm I'm fully vaccinated, that I have to wear a mask when I go to something something like the gym, if the vaccine is supposed to be 99% effective. If I'm on the border of getting vaccinated or not, and then I'm basically being treated the same way, at least in my opinion, as someone who's not vaccinated, uh, I guess, like, to me, the calculus, if you're if you're that in that person's shoes, the calculus might be like, well, what difference does this make anyway? And it does make a big difference. It's like with the flu shot, you can still get the flu, even if you have the vaccine. I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a tough issue. But honestly, that issue is actually less interesting to me 
than this hospitalization thing in some of these rural communities. Like, I just think, and I mean, Republicans have absolutely no plan when it comes to healthcare with anything, no matter what the GOP might tell you. Our, our party's healthcare policies are just an absolute joke. But it's like, I was reading an article, Ben, about how I believe it was Tillamook County. They have like 11 deaths per week or something. And like a what I would consider to be a pretty small number of hospitalizations. But as you were saying, some of these rural communities are literally having to transport people into major cities just to go to the hospital. Like, I think it says something horrific about our healthcare system that we can't even have like 20 people in a hospital that have some sort of sickness in some of these rural communities. They have to get transported hours away from their homes, hours away from their families and things like that. Like some, something is severe. I mean, the COVID obviously is horrible, but like just that fact in itself, which I think has really been brought out by COVID is like something is just absolutely wrong with that. Uh, and I think that someone should write about that or explore that further because I think it's a super interesting issue and something that I've definitely been thinking a lot more as these stories about rural communities being devastated by COVID and kind of like the lack of access to hospitalization has started to come out. I think I think um, Dr. Pierce mentioned that in our interview with him too, that he, he, he one of his arguments was, we, I don't want to, I'm paraphrasing, he said it better than this, but basically we can squeeze more out of our public health system. Like it could be more efficient somehow. I don't know exactly what he meant by that, but that seems to be what you're getting at as well as like, shouldn't these rural, shouldn't these rural hospital hospitals have greater capacity? Is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah. Or it's just more investment for them to have greater capacity. I mean, rural hospitals is, and I, I don't want to get us completely off topic, but like rural hospitals have been closing across the country. Yeah. Uh, actually, many of them, including in Oregon too. And like, I think it's just in utter shame that, you know, somewhere like Tillamook County can't have, I don't know if it's dozens or if it's multiple dozens of people in the hospital where they have to start transporting individuals across the state just to get access to what I would consider to be pretty basic emergency care. But uh, that's kind of a, a thing that I think more people should be exploring as those stories with COVID start to come out. It's like, even in the cities, right? I mean, like, if hundreds of people are in the ICU and we can't handle that in Portland or Los Angeles, like, what does that say about our healthcare system? Yeah. And, and what is some, I, I can't, I, I wish I remembered who wrote this, but somebody was also asking, well, what does that mean for Cascadia? Like when the big earthquake happens? Yeah, exactly. What's going to happen? Um, the last thing on this, and I think then we'll close is uh, not good thing about this, but an important reminder um, from COVID is we talk a lot, especially on this show about the urban rural divide and about how we are culturally and politically divided in the state. And it is certainly showcased by COVID, no doubt about it. But the fact that public health in Josephine County is impacting the hospital beds where I live in Washington County is a reminder that like we are one state still. Um, we we still are a we we still are a large community of people. And I think the instincts that some people have on the left and on the right to sort of like just cut off the relationship and separate is just not re realistic. Like we are, our outcomes are tied together in this state um, as, you know, progressives in urban and suburban places and as rural folks um, who tend to be more conservative, like our hospital system is tied together. Our public health is tied together. Our investment of resources is tied together. Um, and like, I just think these articles about, you know, people being transported to access life-saving medical care is the perfect illustration of that. Um, Titus, any closing thoughts? 
definitely go check out the liftoff. It's much shorter than what we had <laughs> just went through. It takes about five minutes to read through instead of 55 to get through. But no, I was really excited we got to do this episode because I know we've kind of talked about this for a while and people I think have been saying like, what is this thing? And I think this gives much more kind of meat to the details of, of what we're trying to do and what we're trying to build. Absolutely. Thank you everyone for listening, for subscribing, for rating us uh, five stars on Apple Podcasts. We just uh, broke 50. So did we uh, really? Five star reviews. Yeah. Just broke 50. We are well over a thousand subscribers on the Substack. We're well over a hundred paying subscribers. So we've got some, uh, got some good metrics. I think we are getting dangerously close to 5,000 downloads on the uh on the podcast channel too in fact this episode might be the one that uh that gets us there so um we really do appreciate the support um and you know people believing in what we're doing and supporting it um and with that in mind thanks again and uh, we'll see you next week thanks everybody